listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. We are going to be in John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. Just as a quick recap, to catch us up to where we are this morning, in John chapter 1, at the end, Jesus calls the 12 disciples, and for about three years, he teaches them God's plan of redemption. So, he explains to them, in no uncertain terms, over and over and over again, why he has come why he, the God-man, who is fully God and fully man, has come to the earth. That is, at the will of the Father and in obedience to his plan to save sinners like us, for three years he spends this time teaching patiently this truth to his disciples. They see him turn water into wine. They watch him take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000 men and their wives and children, so maybe 14,000 people. They watch him as he comes onto the water and walks to the boat, and as he calls Peter out onto the water, and as Peter begins to sink, and as he raises Peter by his hand, and even Peter walks on water, they see that. They see him take a blind man and take some dirt and some spit which is maybe the grossest miracle, and rub it on this man's eyes, and then he sees. And then a man who for 38 years laid on a mat paralyzed, he called him to get up and walk, and the man walked. They saw Jesus as he wept for his friend Lazarus, and then they rejoiced as he called Lazarus out of a tomb. And they watched a man raise from the dead. And then Jesus takes them to the upper room and he washes their feet. He humiliates himself to show them and teach them the lesson of what it means to serve sacrificially. To show them that he in this moment did not come to be served but to serve. And then he takes hours to teach them in in honesty and with truth how hard the life is going to be for them as a disciple. And then he encourages them that after he dies and is raised again, that in this hard life he will send a helper to them. And, and then they witness as he prays for them. And he asks God to uphold them by His power and with His might. And so we come to where we are now. And after experiencing all of these things, what do the disciples do? Well, they do the thing that makes the most sense. They abandon Him. After all of those things, they abandon Him. And, and we, we might think that in this moment that Jesus might be baffled. I, I think from a human perspective, we could all at least think, this doesn't make sense, right? 
you watched a dead man walk out of a tomb. Jesus spoke this guy unto life. I mean, if I was Jesus, maybe I would not just be baffled, maybe I would be livid, right? But instead, what we end up seeing is that the pain and the humiliation that the disciples will face because of their sin and their rejection and their denial of Jesus has always been known to Him. And in fact, that is actually why He came. So this morning, we're going to be looking at John 18, verses 15 through 27, and it's the famous story of Peter's denial. And what I believe sometimes we're tempted to do is to look at this account, at this story of of this awful, tragic failure of the Apostle Peter, and and kind of judge him. How how could you do this? How, How could you be so ignorant? You saw all of these things. You you walked on water. And I want to remind us that there are a lot of lessons to learn from Peter. But I want us to remember as we're reading this account that all of the failures were known to Jesus. And it is the very reason that he came to this earth. So let's remember that as we read. John chapter 18 verses 15 through 27. Here it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. So I'll give you a few contextual comments as we go along. The other, the, the other disciple, we don't actually know who that is. Best guess is it's probably John himself, and instead of referring to himself as the beloved disciple, because this is such a sad scene, he may just be like, you know, maybe I should just be the other disciple in this instance and not the, the disciple whom Jesus loved for Peter's sake. But it could be Nicodemus. There, there are a lot of options, but quite frankly, if you're like, well, who is it? It doesn't matter at all. So it says, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong." But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent Caiaphas bound, or excuse me, Annas then sent him to bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So one other contextual comment, you may be thinking, how is Annas the high priest and Caiaphas also the high priest? There's only one. Well, that is true. It is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. The problem is Pilate's predecessor, 
deposed the true and rightful high priest who was named by the Jews, which is Annas. And because being a high priest is a lifelong office, the Jews recognized Annas as having the power of the high priest. But the Romans have deposed Annas and a series of his sons, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the standing high priest. And so, the one who is doing the questioning is the one who Israel feels has the power, and that is Annas. But in order to make the political case, he must come through Caiaphas. So that's what's happening here. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would draw us closer to you because of it. And we pray for our friends here this morning who do not know you, that you would use your word mightily and powerfully and supernaturally in their life, that you would cause them to have eyes to see, that you would cause them off the mat of their lame bed to walk, Father, that you would make their dead life beat with true, living, and lasting, eternal life. Father, would, would you be glorified and would your son be exalted this morning? And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so I have two lessons that I want to draw out from this story. The first is this. Peter's failure serves as an illustration of the sinful nature of fallen humanity. So we, right before this, have the account of Judas going out and bringing this band of soldiers who work for the high priest and for the Pharisees coming to the garden where Jesus is praying and arresting Jesus under the cover of darkness. And so at this moment, we have Peter, who we're so hard on, actually, after the garden debacle, after the moment of trying to cut off Malchus's ear, and, well, actually, he was really probably trying to kill him, and he accidentally cuts off his ear. It's like one of those unintentional trick shots on YouTube. I think that's what Peter did. He tried to kill a dude and instead cut his ear off. Well, after that scene, after everything that has just happened, after all of these people see Peter do this, he does actually indeed follow Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. And so as the story starts out, we're thinking, you know what, Peter, Peter's going to do it. He, he's actually going to stay with Jesus. But... As we continue in the story, we see that all it takes to ignite Peter's denial is the question of a young servant girl. The, the very first thing he comes up against is a young servant girl who says, and she's actually looking for a negative answer, hey, you're not, you're actually, you're not one of the disciples, are you, right? This is, this is Peter, the one who says to Jesus, I will never deny you. And if we look at the other gospel accounts, Jesus, when he predicts their denial, he says, listen, you are all going to scatter, you're all going to fall away. And Peter looks Jesus in the eye and he says, I will never fall away. I will go to prison for you, Jesus. I will die for you. This is the Peter that we're dealing with. The one who will 
die for Jesus. And yet it is a servant girl who causes his first denial, his, his first rejection of his Savior that he will follow unto death. And so, as soon as the story begins, we learn our first lesson. Self-confidence will always lead us further from Jesus. You see, Peter's problem, his problem really the entire time as a disciple is that he thinks that Jesus needs him. He, he thinks that Jesus needs his power. He thinks that Jesus needs him to stand up to the soldiers. He thinks that Jesus needs him to die for him. No, 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 Jesus, you, you don't need to die. But if the time comes, I will die for you. Oh, friends, this is, this is what happens when we are self-confident. When we think the power of salvation and the power of righteousness is won by our actions. That we are seen faithful because of what we do. That we are justified because of how good we are. And how confident and how powerful and how mighty we can be for the Lord. This is Peter's story. From the very first day. The dude who hops out on the boat and is like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll walk on the water. You know, the, the other accounts tell us that Peter didn't just follow Jesus. He, he followed him from a distance. Even after cutting off a guy's ear, Peter is still really, really concerned for his life. So much so that he has to follow at a distance so he's not seen by the soldiers. And there's an even greater distance that is made between him and Jesus when a servant girl says, are you one of his disciples? Oh, friends, self-confidence is not the way of faith. And so the story, as we read, only gets worse. It's by the fire that Peter ends up denying any relation to Jesus. The other accounts tell us that he is basically saying, I have no knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. I, I know nothing of this man. Again, another servant girl asking him. And then the third time, he is, he is asked by one of the men around the fire, and we're told that he denies, but the other accounts tell us that he brings curses upon himself. Right? He's not like using cuss words like, I don't blankety blank know Jesus. What he's saying is, I swear to God, I don't know this man. This is what has happened. This is where this story has devolved to. And, and you know, there's a, there's a curious detail in here, and I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it is a really important detail to just see how depraved we really are as sinners. Just how deep sin actually goes within us. How much of us it encompasses. And it's this. Two times we're told in this story that Peter is cold and he needs to warm himself. Two, two times we're told about Peter being cold and needing to get warm. I, I want you to understand that this is the Peter who is willing to die for Jesus. And as we read, and I think what we're supposed to learn is not only is Peter not willing to die for Jesus, he's not even willing to be cold for him. 
He, he could be standing off and, and pacing around and looking at Jesus and watching them as they question him, but yet it's a cold night and he needs to get warm. And so not only will you not die, you won't even be cold for Jesus. Paul says it this way, and I want you to understand that each and every one of us, we, we, we can identify with, with Peter. I don't want you to, to look at this and think, okay, well, ah, yeah, man, so, so rough reading this account of Peter. I want, I want you to read yourself into this account. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul says it this way, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Peter so badly wants to do the right thing for Jesus. But he's doing it with the wrong understanding of Jesus. P Peter thinks that he needs to be the one who will give up his life for Jesus, but what he doesn't understand is that Jesus must be the one who dies for him. Oh, friends, I, I, hope, I hope you understand that. I, I hope when you hear those words from Paul, wretched man that I am, who will put this body to death? That is us, that is our plea. Who will kill the man who can't do what is right? Oh, for Peter, the answer is, is Jesus. Jesus must be the one to die because you're not going to be willing to do it yourself. You're not going to pay this penalty. You're not going to stand and give an account when it's time. Your failures must be borne by me. And then we see ultimately that it's a rooster's crow that awakens Peter from his stupor. And, and finally he begins to see things as they truly are. Right? He becomes overwhelmed by his sin and his shame. And then the other gospels tell us that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. The rooster crows for the third, or he denies for the third time, and the rooster crows, and he hangs his head. And he becomes overwhelmed with his failure and his rejection and his denial. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 22. So in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, we're given this detail at the moment of Peter's third denial, and as the rooster crows, we're told that at that moment, Jesus, from inside the palace, looks into the courtyard, and he locks eyes with Peter. He, he looks to him. Now, it, if I'm looking at Peter in this moment, I'm looking like this. Told you. Or I'm looking with like a bit of scorn. Or maybe I just look at him and then I hang my head so he really knows how disappointed I am. Maybe that's what I do. Again, all of those things would make sense. Everyone has abandoned you. Peter has denied you three times. And he locks eyes with him 
And what does his look communicate? It's so important that we know and understand what Jesus' look communicates. If we're to understand anything of this passage, if we're to understand what God thinks of sinners like us, we have to understand this. Luke 22, verses 31 and 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What does his look communicate? His look doesn't communicate condemnation. His look communicates love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Friends, in Peter's darkest moment, Jesus looks to him in the midst of denying Christ himself, saying, I swear to God, I don't know this man. And Jesus looks to him with love and forgiveness. Is that not amazing? Again, in the midst of their sin and their humiliation and their denial and their rejection, all of these things have always been known to Jesus, and it's why He came. You know, if you are looking at this and you're seeing glimpses of yourself, then praise God. I hope every single one of us, if you are a believer in this room, that you see glimpses of yourself in Peter. Because this account of Peter is given to us, not just so we can look at Peter and say, oh, poor Peter, this is, this is so sad. We're meant to see that what Peter does is what we are all capable of doing. We look at Peter and we think, oh, would, would I deny? Would I, would I be the one who has to, to hear the rooster crow? Or would I live and be faithful and, and do what I'm supposed to do? Oh. Friends, multiple times in our lives, as followers and disciples of Jesus, we're going to hear the rooster crow. But what this means then is that as we read this account of Peter's failure, it should cause us to think about the sins that we have just let go in our life or the ones who, that, that live in the deep recesses of our life and, and to call them to the surface and to cry out in confession to the Lord, to confess, Jesus, I am Peter. I have failed you. I have been living in this sin. I have rejected you. I have denied you. I have chosen myself over you. I have lived far too long in my own confidence. And we are to confess those things to the Lord. Why? Why on earth would we do that? Well, it's because just like Peter, Jesus is looking to us with love and forgiveness. Oh, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ and His completed work for you, then He will forgive any failure that you can bring to Him. But I don't want us to forget, as, as Peter is being questioned and denying, Jesus is also being questioned. So it's, it's most likely the way that this is recorded 
is done so in a way that we would understand that Peter and Jesus are being questioned at basically exactly the same time. So, so the way we read it here, we see, okay, well, Peter's being questioned, and then Jesus is being questioned, and then Peter has his last question. Well, the reason it's done that way is so we would see this happening simultaneously. That, that's going to be an important detail. So let's set the scene here. So Jesus has been arrested in the garden. He has now been brought to the high priest's palace, and he's arrested at night. And, I mean, that just kind of proves the urgency of the whole matter, right? It's, it's Thursday night, very, very late, most likely early morning Friday, like middle of the night. They go out and they arrest this man. The next thing you know, they are bringing him in before the high priest, and the high priest is questioning him. And Jesus, proving that he is actually the true high priest, says, hey, shouldn't we bring some witnesses in here? According to the law, you really shouldn't be asking me to serve as a witness for myself. You should bring in two or three. That's why he tells them, hey, there are a bunch of people who can tell you exactly what you're looking to find out. Even in this moment, Jesus is unwilling to disobey God's law. Go find some witnesses. And then we see he gets slapped in the face for it. This was not okay. There was, there was no time ever that it was okay to abuse a witness who had not yet been found guilty. They are questioning this man that they hate and they're abusing him. So I want us to see that this, this urgency really actually proves how much they hate Jesus. How, how deep their hatred goes for this man. They, they want him to die, but as quickly as possible. So again, it's, it's late Thursday night, probably early Friday morning. They have been celebrating the Sabbath, or excuse me, the Passover, well, the Passover Sabbath is going to start on Saturday, like midnight Saturday. So here's what needs to happen. They need to bring him before Annas, and they need to find some sort of theological error in him. That is, this man thinks he's God, and we can't have that. The Pharisees will not stand for this. Then they need to send him to Caiaphas, and they need to figure out some sort of political motive because then they need to send him to Pilate. So Pilate will say, okay, he's saying he's a king. He's going to set up his own kingdom. He's going to try to overthrow Rome. This is bad. It's a rebellion. And so then Pilate needs to condemn him. And then after that, they need to get him to the place where he will go and be hung on a cross. They need to get him on the cross, have him die on a cross, bring him down from the cross, and then bury him before Friday morning. Why is that? Because you can't do anything on the Sabbath. And then after the Passover feast is a full week of a feast called the unleavened bread. And if you deal with any sort of dead body whatsoever, you become undefiled and you have to go outside of the city and cleanse yourself. So in order to be able to still celebrate the Sabbath and to enjoy the festivities... He needs to die within hours. And so Judas comes to them and says, hey, I know where he'll be. And they're like, let's go now. 
Oh, friends, they hate him. (laughs) They hate him so much. Not even another week can go by with this man living and breathing. And so, so, so they do really the impossible. They try a man with basically no grounds and have him in the grave in a matter of hours. So they can still celebrate the Sabbath and still celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. (laughs) And so they ask two incriminating questions in order to accomplish this. Who are your disciples? That's going to be important because they want to know who they need to snuff out. They want to know who they need to apply pressure to so that this thing can go away. Not only does Jesus need to die, these disciples need to hush. Who are your disciples? And then what is your teaching? That's what they ask him. And what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about him in this moment? Well, what we learn is that Jesus is willfully and faithfully suffering and making his way to a cross for followers who will denounce, deny, and flee from his very presence. He could have said, you know, actually there are two of my disciples right there. Let's, let's see how faithful they really are. They're right there. Just ask them. But Jesus will not give up the cross of Christ for anything. Friends, this is so unfair. Everything they're doing is so unfair to Jesus. And yet, this is why he was born. This is the hour for which he has come. This is the moment where he knows he is right where he is supposed to be. And I I think it's in this moment, in this questioning, that we we get just a, a, a small glimpse of God's love for us, for sinners like us. Because, as I said, this is happening simultaneously as Peter is denying Jesus is obeying. And so what's happening is that Jesus is standing here and he is faithfully and obediently standing in the will of God so that Peter's denial and failure that's happening at the same moment can be put to death in him. As as Peter is failing, Jesus is doing the very thing that will overturn that failure for him. Friends, this is happening simultaneously. Like like live Peter's greatest failure, and then the way in which his failure will be redeemed before a holy God. And we should see no irony at all in the fact that they are celebrating the Passover. What the high priests don't understand is that for the first time in Israel's history, they are actually and finally putting the Passover lamb to death. You remember the the Passover lamb is the lamb that every year the high priest would offer to atone for the sins of the people. Every year the blood would cover the nation for a year 
so that God would not disavow them and strike them dead. It's what happened in Egypt whenever they were told to take the lamb and wipe the blood on the doorpost so that when the wrath of God comes through, it will pass over you. Oh, friends, they, they, are, they are putting to death the Passover lamb who will die and whose blood will cover a multitude of sins forever. This disobedience and this denial, because of what is happening to Christ and because of what will happen to Him on the cross and because He will raise from the dead, His failure, your failure, my failure will be atoned for. It'll, it'll be covered by the blood of Jesus. And even in the midst of our greatest and most humiliating failures, we will be seen as righteous before a holy God. Not because of what we have done or because of what we can do and not lacking because of our failure, but simply what Christ has done. So uh, a few years back, um, one of my sons, I'm not going to tell you their name, he did something really awful, so awful that I can't even remember what it was. But in maybe one of my greatest parenting moments ever, it was so bad that I looked at this young boy and said, I know we were supposed to take you to get back to school shoes. We ain't doing it now. You're not getting shoes. Okay. Like, I'm so tough, right? Man, I'm really cracking down on this kid. Well, privately, Chelsea came to me and she was like, hey, you know, he does need to be um, like, like, I understand what you're doing, and we do need to deal with this, but, I mean, we do actually need to get him shoes, so you're going to have to figure that out, because we got to go get him today. Like, I got a coupon, and it expires in, like, three hours, so you have to figure this out, big boy. So, I'm like, okay, let's get him the shoes. So, we get there, and I'm still aggravated at what he did, and I go, and I open the door, and I kneel down, and I look at this boy, and I say, you do realize that you disobeyed me earlier, right? Yes, sir. You do realize that it was wrong, right? Yes, sir. You do realize that you don't, under- don't deserve these shoes, right? Yes, sir. Okay, well, I'm going to show you grace, and I'm going to give you the shoes that you don't deserve. And he wept. Like big old tears. You know, one of the most incomprehensible moments we can experience is the moment that our sin is met with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Could you imagine being Peter? and looking to the one you've called the Christ and seeing his face and his eyes meeting you with love and mercy and forgiveness in the midst of your greatest failure. Ephesians 3, Paul explains God's grace like this. Verses 14 through 19, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is it that Jesus was communicating to Peter, and by extension to to us, to those who have placed our faith in Christ, to, to those who struggle against sin, to those of us who have come into this room and we've had great failures this week or in our past, and we bring those burdens and that weight with us into this room today? What does he say to people like that? Well, Paul says this, that in Christ you have been given the knowledge of a love that surpasses all understanding. And isn't that so true? Can we ever fully fathom what it means for Christ to die for the forgiveness of our sins? And for Jesus to look at failures like us and count us righteous for what Christ has done on our behalf. Listen, this is what Jesus has done for us. He has revealed the love of God for sinners. So I want to close with this. We have Peter here in one of the darkest, really most awful moments of of his life. I think when we get to heaven and we ask Peter, hey, um, you know, there's no agenda here. What was the worst moment of your life? I think he's going to say, you're lucky we're in heaven because if we weren't, I would punch you right in your face, right? You know what it is. Leave me alone. You know. That Peter, the one, the one who had to look his, his Savior in his eyes, he writes this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Dear believer, here's what I want you to know. God is not done with you. Whatever you have brought into this room today, whatever your burdens are, whatever the weight of sin that is tearing you apart... What I want you to understand is that God is not done with you. What we need to do is, like Peter, we need to weep the bitter tears of our failure and our denial and our sin, and we need to run to Christ. And what you'll realize is that while you chose sin over Jesus, He has, from eternity past, chosen you. And He's never surprised, and He is always ready to restore you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that we do not deserve. I pray that you would encourage us today. 
I pray that you would cause our unbelieving friends in this room to desire this grace and this mercy, that they would relinquish rule over their life and cast their cares upon you and place their faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Oh, Father, we're so grateful that you are so kind, and we're so grateful that your grace for us, your people, is never-ending and never-failing, and it will stand forever. No matter what we do, it will stand forever. We thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.